Welcome to the OysterCast, a weekly podcast about the intersection of creativity and technology. My name is Ron Cowie. And I'm Alex Boudelier, and we consist of Oyster Farm Productions, a Rhode Island-based video production company. We use cameras and stuff to tell stories that make the world a better place. We'll be sharing our experience, giving honest reviews, and talking with the most fascinating people we meet. Today we're going to be talking about the book, It's Not How Good You Are, It's How Good You Want to Be and focusing on a couple of pages about getting it wrong and being right and how being wrong is actually right. And if that doesn't make sense, you're just going to have to listen. To be right is to play it safe, but to be wrong often is where innovation and new ideas are created. And today we're going to be looking at some examples of that and how this thinking has been practiced and how you can practice it today. Do you have, anything, do you have anything to report real quick, Alex, before we dive in? Uh, like what? <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I'm just saying that, like, it, it, you know, I, I didn't want to appear insensitive. That, you know, we're just. See, I um, care. I appreciate it. Well, let's start with the the book. But if you if you don't know who Paul Arden is, he was in advertising, and he uh, and he wrote this book called "It's Not How Good You Are, It's How Good You Want to Be." And I bought it. This it's about 120 pages or so, and each one of the pages it's or each kind of thoughts it's a little mini essays and this part really kind of hit me because it, I, I think it resonates with a lot of the things that we do and it, it also touches on a, a real fear that I have which is um, about being wrong it's and this is from page 56 it's right to be wrong start being wrong and suddenly anything is possible you're no longer trying to be infallible you're in the unknown there's no way of knowing what can happen, but there's more chance of it being amazing if you try to be right. Of course, being wrong is a risk. People worry about suggesting stupid ideas because of what others will think. Some risks have a future, and some people call them wrong, but being right may be like walking backwards proving where you've been. Being wrong isn't in the future or in the past. Being wrong isn't anywhere, but being here. And, and what jumps out at me with this is that you know there's so much energy spent especially in you know trying new things there's this idea of what right looks like and it really isn't a creative thing because what right is has already been established so it's just copying what has already been established and approved what Arden is talking about here is if you're not worried about getting it right which is to say you if you're not worried about copying an idea and you're just willing to try something new and it might not fit the current model of what correct is, you might have something brand new on your own. It's not about being wrong as like you're doing something antisocial or whatever. It's about not worrying about the outcomes. Being wrong is about being willing to follow your curiosity. Well, and, and be willing to fail. Yeah. Not being afraid to fail, right? I think, and this is a whole other episode, but you turned me on to Seth Godin and he did this whole podcast episode about the regular kind Mm -hmm. and that's what people are drawn to and people don't like things that aren't the regular kind, which is things that they're not used to and things that aren't, I guess, aren't safe, Mm -hmm. right? Having the, you know, it takes courage to kind of, I keep using the analogy of coloring outside the lines, but mm-hmm. that's if everyone colored inside the lines, we wouldn't have famous art. Yeah. Right. 
like look at pretty much any famous artist mm-hmm. you know they are they stand out because they're doing something different yeah no totally a wonderful example and i am by no means an art historian but the impressionist painters when they presented their stuff in the salons they were panned they were like, this is garbage there's no detail mm-hmm. same thing with pictorialists the the early 20th century photographers that were kind of making photography as art it was just thought of as garbage you know i mean it was and it really took a few people like steichen and stieglitz to kind of create this little gallery is like no this is important stuff he saw something that no one else did photography as a, a means of creative expression and not and that's where things actually kind of changed because what photography was doing in the late 19th and early 20th century with pictorialism was trying to mimic painting. And so that's where, you know, that, that really kind of very gauzy, uh, soft focus look was trying to mimic the effect of painting. Alfred Stieglitz ushered in a different aesthetic that photography as a means of creative expression utilizing everything that photography can do. It's not trying to be something else. It is its own creative entity. It, it took a while, but it's not like everyone just jumped on that train. And now I don't know a ton about this topic, but you know, even thinking of like Ansel Adams, mm-hmm. you know, he, he would take his big, you know, eight by 10 camera and walk around, you know, the West coast and, or not the West coast, but like Yosemite Valley and, you know, his pictures aren't technical masterpieces, but, you know, they're not technical masterpieces, but they're a symbol of what hadn't been done before. Mm-hmm. I would actually push back on that and say they are technical masterpieces in one sense that if you, and one of the things, and he actually- I knew you'd push back on this too. This is wait, great. The, the amazing gift that he gave us was one his, his visual library i mean it, it really is remarkable but he also took copious notes and really started to you know like he could tell you what he did and that this was something that could be taught mm-hmm. and, and that this is you know he really started to unpack like the science of photography but did it in a very creative way, you know, there would be repeatable results and people could kind of understand stuff. He gets kind of kicked around for being just a mechanic. And I don't think that's necessarily fair. If you look at some of his stuff, I mean, his contemporary Ed Weston, and I think they both were kind of, I I know that Stieglitz showed Ansel Adams stuff. You know, like Ansel Adams, if I'm not mistaken, was shown at Stieglitz's gallery. You know, so that's where he got his break. So the, the, this circle kind of gets connected. Uh, I always tell my students, because they they always wanted to kind of poo-poo Ansel Adams and be like, oh, he's just, he's boring. But you, you got to c- put him in context. At that time, when he really started to hit, he was doing stuff with his camera that people just weren't doing. So that, I guess, kind of the point that I wanted to, to, to focus on is like, yeah. you know, using the tools you have to think outside the box a little bit and do something that no one else is doing. And, you know, nowadays that can seem impossible because, you know, it's easy to get stuck in the mindset of, well, if it can be done, someone already did, Mm -hmm. but it's always been the case. Yeah. 
Like that that's never that's not a new thing. Like everybody always has thought that forever. Yeah. And yet there's been examples of innovation. Uh I want to talk about two photographers that really kind of illustrate this point really well for me, I guess. Uh one of them is Sally Mann. I want to talk about her more current work. Um Sally Mann studied wet plate collodion photography with Mark and Franz Osterman in Rochester, New York. And she then went out to make this collection of Southern landscapes uh, using the wet plate collodion process. But really, the thing that made them so different and amazing was how technically wrong they were. Wet plate collodion is one of these processes that if you get it right, there's detail for days. It's a fascinating, beautiful uh, process, but it's, you know, the process itself is you take collodion, which is kind of liquefied cotton, you pour it on a glass plate, and you put that in a silver bath, and then you put that in a special holder and you expose it to light and you develop it. Uh, Civil War photography, that was mainly done, that was when the wet plate collodion process was in its heyday. What Sally Mann did is she went out and she did learn the process. She knows how to make, if you were to say, hey, Sally, I need you to make me a flawless plate, she could do it. So she knows the technique on how to make a good wet plate collodion. But she went out and she used the shortcomings of this process to make this incredible gothic collection of landscapes that it's like stepping out of time you know it it made the instead of just documenting the space it made it this eternal and timeless you know landscape that you just could look at it for days and all of a sudden everyone had to do wet plate collodion because sally mann was is huge and they wanted to do it like her so is sally mann learned how to do it right, has purposely done it wrong, and now there's this whole you know population of photographers who are doing wet plate collodion photography incorrectly, but they think it's right, if that makes sense. <laughs> you know, she's, she made doing it wrong right, but the people who didn't know how to do it actually right think that her doing it wrong is the way to do it. And they're just trying to copy her. Uh, and the other photographer I want to think about, do you, you know Sally Mann, right? Yeah, I was, uh, I didn't know her by name, but I looked her up and I've actually seen a lot of these pictures before and and I was following along. Yeah, yeah, she's she's something. And the other photo- photographer I want to talk about is Amy Gisa. And she just is this incredible mind. I mean, just always thinking quick sense of humor and just a brilliant visual vocabulary she broke down the idea of what a photograph is at least in my mind and she made these things called skiograms and i'm just going to uh, read from her artist statement off of her website skiograms the large-scale unique silver gelatin skiograms greek for shadows written that I make are a direct recording of the shadow patterns in a room at night. They are created without a camera or an aperture. The project is an exploration of how the inherent properties of a darkroom paper capture and hold elements of a specific time, place, and moment. The work is also about 
confounding the expectations of the viewer that photographs are of something recognizable. Ultimately, the skiograms are a play between light and dark, tangible and abstract, a physical object and the inferiority of a moment. And I think, you know, I will tie Sally Mann and Amy Gisa loosely together because what Sally Mann was doing with her camera is taking the, making landscapes kind of, you could hearken back to the pictorialist movement, but it just, it's like a ghost. I get a lot of inspiration from Sally Mann's approach to making work. And, and one of the things I saw that really struck me is that it's fun. It's supposed to be fun. Like, if it's not fun, why do it? Like, so she makes this very serious, very thoughtful, beautiful body of work, but she's also having fun doing it. And that, that I think, is the key. Uh, and Amy Gisa, these works, you look at them, and it, it, she hits it right on the head. You, you don't know what it is. So she's playing with light. Amy is doing it wrong, but she's knocking it out of the park. People who are highly skilled and highly talented and very capable are kind of taking these photography and turning it on its ear and it's a whole other direction and it's fascinating. It's inspiring. I love that stuff. Those are the things I have to say about that. Yeah, I had never heard of Amy before before you mentioned her the other day um, and looking through her, her work, it's really... At first, like I, I admit, I've, I have never... I don't typically take the time to to stop and really appreciate, you know, what most would call fine art photography. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just never something that I've really like stopped and really learned how to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these are really cool, and and if you're listening, I highly recommend you check them out and and just kind of stare at it for a little while. They're meditations in some way, shape, or form. I get inspired by people who just it, it kind of feels like they're screwing around a little bit. Like that opens up a lot of doors for me. I know I am kind of burdened with perfectionism, but just that feeling of it, it has to look like what is established as being right because I need that validation. I think people who aren't so worried about being validated get a lot more work done. Yeah. I don't think I could relate any more to that statement. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's painful. Going on, um, talk talk to me about mountaineering and how it's changed. Well, I think a, a, a good example of this is I, I want to pull a lot of this from from the the movie Valley Uprising, which will be linked in the show notes. And if you haven't seen it, even if you're not into climbing or anything, it's it's really interesting just to see how it originated. And it was basically this this group of people that you know lived out of their cars, or if they even had one, they were just perpetually living in this camp and Yosemite Valley and you know we're looking up at the walls looking up at El Cap and and Half Dome and thinking I think I could climb that kind of carefree pursuit of something new sparked a a my I thought that the interesting part of the movie that is as it relates to kind of like it's wrong to be right and right to be wrong and all that stuff was as Royal Robbins started getting more known and Warren Harding was kind of doing his own thing, that there was this rivalry. 
talk a little bit about that rivalry for me, if you don't mind. So for those of you who haven't seen the movie, which you should, it's on Amazon Prime. Royal Robbins was, and Warren Harding were both uh, pioneer climbers in Yosemite. And Royal Robbins was very set on doing things the right way. And granted, there was no right way. You know, this hadn't been done before. Everything was new, but he had a way in his head of how it should be done and had a bit of a mental rule book that everyone who climbed had to follow. He wrote the rules down. Right. Like he said, this is how you need to do it if you want to climb, which I thought was interesting. Right. We still follow those rules today. Warren Harding just said, screw it. I'm, I want to climb that wall and I'm going to do it my way and I don't care what you think. Royal Robbins even admitted down the line that there was a part of him that was jealous that Warren Harding was getting attention for achievements that he wasn't getting, but it fed into this rivalry where they just had to keep one-upping each other. And on one side, you had the right way, but that right way, you know, the person doing the right thing wasn't progressing without pressure from the guy doing the wrong thing. And I thought that was really interesting how it was the right thing, even though in the grand scheme of things, it was still wrong because no one had climbed before. No one had set the rules yet. And he just defined them and said, this is right. And then you have everyone else or other people who are doing it wrong saying, oh, yeah, but you can't do this. And now, you know, they kept one upping each other. And now, you know, this climb that they took a week to do you can now do it in an afternoon or a full day. Hmm. The thing that really kind of, or that I, re- I really liked, Warren Harding was this a hard partier, just a real kind of character, a rogue, if you will. And uh, Royal Robbins had this personality. Of, you know, Warren Harding called all the people who were hanging out with Royal Robbins like the Valley Christians. You mm-hmm. know, it was just kind of this, Royal Robbins was this very serious, I would say he's very Episcopalian you know, in, mm-hmm. the, in the sensibility. What I really liked, I think it was El Capitan mm-hmm. that he did. And, and Royal Robbins was like, oh, he did that? Well, I'm going to climb ap- up after him with a chisel. I'm going to take out all those bolts. And he's banging out all those bolts. And was he said, as I got near the top, I realized that there was some really amazing climbing going on. Like Warren Harding was doing some amazing climbing. It started as like a resentment climb. Like I'm going to teach you a lesson about putting bolts into the the thing. And then he got to a point where it was like, actually, you know what? There's some poetry here. Maybe he's not so crazy after all. My impression was that Royal Robbins just kind of stopped fighting a little bit. What do you mm-hmm. think? No, I think you're 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 exactly right. I think he just kind of he set out to one up Warren Harding once again and had to kind of concede and show some humility. I think you you quoted it right. You know, this was some really creative climbing. And at the time, 
what's really interesting is they were doing what we now call aid climbing mm-hmm. where uh, later on in the movie they talk about the difference between aid climbing and free climbing and free climbing is what you see you know at any rock gym where you know you're using your own body power to move up the wall and you have a rope as backup and they were essentially you know pounding a bolt into the rock and then hanging on it so that they could kind of shimmy up high enough to put the next one in having to figure that all out as they go on top of everything else i think is really interesting yeah every iteration of these groups kind of went through a cycle of it being very fresh and very new and then it got very it, it kind of got formalized and and set in stone no pun and then it kind of um broke down and then this new group of people came in and just built off of that and said no we're we're going to do it we're we're going to climb without ropes we're going to climb faster we're going to climb you know and, and it just and it's not like there were these i mean royal robbins's rules i guess existed but people just kept on pushing that edge and then you get you know these folks who are climbing with parachutes now Mm-hmm. So they can even take even more chances, and if they fall, they have a parachute, which I think is nuts. Right. That's a whole other topic about how they're climbing and, and base jumping, which is what that is, Yeah, became, it, it was illegal in the valley. And so as these guys are climbing, these people are climbing, if they thought they were going to fall, they had to choose. And And this sounds ridiculous, but they mentioned it in the movie, and I think it's just interesting to kind of even think about that if they pull their chute then the rangers are going to come after them and if they don't they die so they have to decide mid-fall and uh, we all know what we would choose oh yeah don't do it in the first place but then pull the chute yeah um but it's just the fact that they even had to bring that up and make that distinction shows how dedicated these people were and I don't know. It's just interesting. Yeah. You should no, watch it. It's a fascinating movie. And I got to admit, like, I have zero interest in climbing aside from stairs. <laughs> I looked at some of that. I was like, nope, nope, nope. Yep. Huge fan of feet on the ground. I appreciate people doing that. I think it is a tremendous physical act. But gravity doesn't love you back. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a big fan of not having to wonder, you know, things in, you know, Valley Uprising, excellent movie. And you can kind of see this fluidity of rules and being right and wrong and how it kind of goes back and forth and the rules that the climbers kind of imposed on themselves and then how they broke those rules and also how they kind of fit into society and... What's interesting is to see how the relationship has evolved and changed between the climbers and the forest rangers now and the general public. Yeah. So, good movie. All right. I know it's something important now when my first response is, that's not right. Mm-hmm. Like, that, that's the red flag for me. It's like, oh. I'm getting to that age, too. Yeah. It's like, and it's because back when we were kids, so to speak, I didn't know any better. You know, I mean, I I remember making videos when I was 13 
you know, and we just we just played. Kind of, you know, now that I'm 50, I kind of want to get back to just playing. Mm-hmm. And, and just, we made silly little videos. We called them exciting videos. I had a video camera, you know, with the VHS recorder and you know, the camera plugged into the thing on your shoulder. And we just played. We told little stories and we made stuff up and we made each other, we basically to just make each other laugh. And then all of a sudden, all this structure kind of got put back on it and it stopped being fun and it started to get, and you kind of caught me. We, we started working together when I kind of wanted to get back to having fun. I'm in my second childhood now and you, you are the parent. <laughs> they make a good team. Yes. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> because, you know, if it were up to me, it would just be making, I don't know. So, um, onward. The team topic, uh, you, we were talking about Netflix and the requirements that they have for camera gear. You had some thoughts on that. Yeah. So I thought this was, I thought it was interesting. Um, you know, we've said kind of in the past of using Netflix as kind of a symbol for, um, you know, some people say, you know, make something Emmy worthy or whatever. But I think I've, I've heard you say in the past, something like shoot for Netflix. Like, mm-hmm. you know, what would it take to get this project on Netflix? And not literally necessarily, you know, mm-hmm. it's just kind of as a motivational tool. Um, and I, I had learned something that they actually have an approved list of equipment that, uh, I believe 80% of your project has to be shot on something in their list of approved equipment. Um, and obviously there are some flexibilities there and they even say so, uh, you know, if it's a crash cam or a drone or something like that, but they kind of put this barrier to entry. Mm-hmm. Up. And ever since I had hurt, I learned that it kind of took the wind out of my sails a little bit. Not that I was really shooting anything that was Netflix worthy, but it was like, why even bother mm-hmm. if we won't get there? And that that's, you know, stupid because I'll never make something that's network Netflix worthy if we don't start somewhere. Yeah. Right. So there's that. Um, and they're constantly adding to it. You know, I, I just saw that they added the Canon C70 to it recently and the Canon C300 Mark III. But, you know, it's all cine cameras, you know, starting from the Alexa and the Reds to, I think the C70 is probably the cheapest camera on that list, mm-hmm. kind of in league with the 55 that's on there. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, I thought that was an interesting kind of tidbit that m- people might not necessarily know. And at the same time, I, I would encourage people to not be discouraged like I was, mm-hmm. because A, as we all know, and our bank accounts know, Netflix is not the only streaming service in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. If you're always shooting, and I, I did this um, within the past few years, I had my eyes set on an Emmy with a particular project. That's all I. That's all I could think about. Mm-hmm. We submitted it, and you know, we went through the whole process, and we didn't get it. We didn't even get nominated. Mm-hmm. And granted, in that category, we had some pretty stiff competition. 
uh, we were competing against all of the news stations in Boston as well. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty, pretty stiff. I think having a goal can be helpful. Like I'm a pretty, I wouldn't say I always achieve my goals, but I, I like to set goals. Mm-hmm. It gives gives me, it at least puts me on the right path. And I will often change that goal mm-hmm. as soon as I set it. But it kind of gives me a direction to, to start mm-hmm. moving towards. And I think, who cares if, about Netflix? I mean, you know, they cancel everything after the second season anyway. Yeah. So, you know, YouTube is the new cable, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's more important just to focus on making stuff and having, like what you said, having fun doing it and, you know, get it out there. And, you know, Netflix, you know, half their stuff is Netflix originals anyway. So if they really want you to make something, then they'll tell you. Yeah. On the flip side, the reason they had, they have that gear in place in the first place, you know, first of all, just quality. They they don't want, they, they don't want, you know, something super high quality next to something low quality. You know, they have a standard of excellence that they want to stick with. But they also probably want to raise the barrier to entry. And I think you had mentioned when we were talking about this before that if you say they can submit anything, you know, if they say that you can say anything you want, shot on anything you want, they're going to get submissions every day that are just crap. Mm-hmm. And maybe not all of it is crap. And But that's why film festivals exist that's why youtube exists that's why yeah there are outlets we could just turn our cameras on and shoot video of this and get it out tonight Mm -hmm. and that there's no resistance there there's no friction there so it makes sense that a larger goal there is some resistance there is some friction you have to kind of work towards it you have to be a company or an entity that has the resources to buy a camera like that. Mm-hmm. A couple of different ways of thinking about it. And obviously if you just go out and buy one of those cameras and make something, they're not going to accept it necessarily, but yeah, it's still interesting. Well, it's, it's funny because you always hear people say I've done everything right. And how come I'm not happy? Right. Yeah. And, and that nails it. Even what I think is right. I'm still like, I still bring me to it. Like I don't, I've always found that I, you know, happiness is something that's experienced in the past. That sounds depressing, but well, the idea being that like, I didn't, I don't always know when I'm doing my best work when I'm doing it. And actually a, a body of work that got the most traction for myself was um so i I made it in like 2007 and 2008 and it it was this very thing it it was the it's called leaving babylon uh and it was the idea i I was out making pictures with my 8x10 camera and landscapes and i really and i was trying i was really trying to drill down into platinum printing i wanted to get the exposure right, the film developing right, so I could make these platinum prints. And I remember I was on an assignment at Connecticut College and I brought my 8x10 camera because I was like, I'm just going to bring my camera and I'm going to make a landscape. And I remember looking through the ground glass and just seeing this boring little landscape. And I I just thought, I'm just going to make the picture the way I think I want it to, you know, the, the way I want to. Not the way I can. I, I'm just recording space and time. 
you know, up until that moment. And I just started, you know, with a large format camera, it has a lot of tilts and shifts and whatever. And the purpose for that was actually to, for architecture photography or whatever, to con control perspective. So you could actually make it correct in, in camera. But you can, what you can also do is use those camera movements to distort. And that's what I started to do. I remember when I'm making this stuff, the voice in my head was not, gosh, this is really groundbreaking. It, you know, this is interesting. This is so much fun. Oh my God, this is great work. It was, you're doing it wrong. This is bad. This mm -hmm. is stupid. Why are you wasting film? Like constantly. It, it, it was, it was an inset. I knew I was on the right track because I kept on hearing, this is dumb. This is in incessantly bad. You're wasting money. You're wasting film through the entire process. It was the most miserable experience, you know, I had creating, but it also was the most original work that I'd made up to that point. Mm -hmm. It was the first time that I ever did something that was fresh and I did it all wrong. And I, and it finally was like, oh, it's okay to do it wrong. And then I tried to go back to doing it in that style again, and I just couldn't do it. It, like it, it had served its purpose. Like the, the, the muse came and pre presented this method and then it went away and I had to break my own rules. I had to get it wrong when I got it right and life moves on and now we're doing this and I'm having a ball. That's a good place to end. You have been listening to the OysterCast with Alex Boudelier and Ron Cowie. Please subscribe so you don't miss out on a single episode. We're making them fresh every week. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts with any questions or comments you might have. And until next week, be well and have fun. Well said. Thank you. See you next week. All right. Goody, goody. Oh, I stop this thing. Stop. Stop in the name of love. Okay. Oh, wait. We should clap. Or oh, shit. I already, I already hit stop on my audition. Dang. Well, me too. All right. Well, we'll sync it up. Let's clap here. One, two, three. All right. Done. <laughs>